Welcome to the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. I'm your host, Brian Russell, and today it's my privilege to speak with Brandy Anderson. Brandy is a writer and she's a spiritual director who's on an ever-winding contemplative path of becoming. Brandy's a deep thinker. I first came across her work through her Instagram account at Contemplative Reflections. I found her account to be one of those places that I always looked forward to seeing what she posts. She posts mostly her own thinking along with uh, classic quotations from other contemplatives. And Brandy has the ability as a writer and as a spiritual director uh, to describe the interior life also to raise interesting perspectives that help to bring out what I would call the shadow parts of ourselves so that we can integrate all of us into a life of grace with God. I found this interview to be really interesting and we get deep. Brandy's type of spiritual direction is rooted in Jungian psychoanalysis. So she was trained through a program that does stress the works of Carl Jung, which I think is where the, where the shadow work pieces come out. And I was able to get some new insights that I hadn't previously had. And I'm always grateful for that when I get that from a guest. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as, as I did. You can find out more about Brandy and we'll have links to her social media and her website in the show notes. And before we jump into the interview, I'd like to remind those of you who are interested in finding out a little bit more about my work, both the books I've written, I have a a blog, links to other episodes of the podcast. It's all at brianrussellphd.com. You can also find out information about my coaching that I do for pastors and spiritually minded uh, leaders. If you're also like to go a little deeper into contemplative spirituality, in particular Centering Prayer, and invite you to sign up for my email list at centeringprayerbook.com. I'll share with you a monthly updates on Centering Prayer, as well as invitations to the monthly Centering Prayer gathering that I host with my friend and fellow Centering Prayer author, Rich Lewis. Our next one will be on April 15th, 2023. We generally do meet on the third Saturday of each month at noon. So if you're interested, sign up at centeringprayerbook.com. Now let's listen in to my conversation with Brandy Anderson. Welcome to the Deep Dive Podcast, Brandy. I'm so grateful to have you here today. Thank you, Brian. It's great to be here. Well, uh, just to get things started, uh, share a little bit about your own faith journey, uh, kind of key moments that have led you to spiritual directions, contemplative spirituality, and in the process of writing and uh, shopping a book for publication. Um, sure. So, well, I was raised in a Christian uh, family, primarily Methodist, Baptist um, denominations. It never really resonated with me. Um, so as an adult, um, I probably would have identified as a Christian, the faith of my family, but I was, you know, virtually unplugged from the church. And then in 2014, I had a spiritual awakening. Um, I had been experiencing a season of depression and it was just persistent and ongoing, this heaviness. And finally, under just a deep, pit of despair, I cried out to God. And it wasn't really, it wasn't like a moment of a pious prayer or or a moment of epiphany. It was more of an if you were there kind of prayer where I just like unleashed my frustrations into the atmosphere. And I was just hoping that something might shift. 
And um, and then suddenly, in the midst of all that emotional turmoil and ranting, I heard a voice uh, as clear as anything I've ever heard in my life. I mean, to be sure, I, I, it was an internal voice, but I heard the words, be still. Mm-hmm. And they just penetrated me deeply. And suddenly, peace, just overwhelming peace engulfed me. And it lasted for days, weeks after that event. And I knew that it was God but I didn't have a context for what had happened to me. So uh, that set me out on a journey of uh, deep truth seeking. And because I'm from a Christian uh, family, uh, that was the doorway that I entered the the spiritual journey. I plugged plugged into a few um, churches, non-denominational for the most part over the next few years. And I just began to... um, you know, read, you know, volumes, just pour over scripture and just, just study and try to, to mind out, mind out deep truth. And, um, ultimately, uh, I hit a place where I found mainstream Christian answers to life's most important questions, just less than satisfying. So it was in that space, um, of a bit of frustration that I kind of broke through into more of a contemplative space um where god is more experiential and less conceptual you know where there's room for mystery and grace and so i found a lot of rest and refreshment in that space and and it was uh during my time um you know just and i you know it was authors like richard Rohr, uh thomas merton cynthia bourgeau that you know they really opened the door into that reality for me so um, and I became interested in Jungian psychology. Um, so I just began to read mainly Jungian analysts. I find them a lot more digestible than Jung himself, although I have read Jung himself. Um, but yeah, his model um, of individuation is just, I found it compelling. And so that's what led me into spiritual direction. Um, the Hayden Institute, where I studied spiritual direction, uh, their primary focus is a psycho-spiritual approach uh, to becoming whole and offering space to others uh, as they take the journey inward. So, yeah, so that's just, that's kind of where I I came from and and how I landed where I am currently. How did you know growing up as an evangelical, you got this be still message. So how how did you, how did you get, get from that experience to the actual contemplative stuff? Since it seems like that's like a hidden gem that isn't, I mean, I was, I've been a Christian for like 40 some years before I discovered the contemplative world. And I always thought it was new age stuff or Catholic. So how did you just even find it coming out of the evangelical church? Do you, do you remember? Yeah. So for me, I wasn't really, though I was raised in an evangelical Christian context, it really, re- it didn't resonate with me. And so I wasn't bound to any particular, you know, set of beliefs. And, and i you know this about me, but I'm a five on the Enneagram. And so I don't take things at face value. Like, you know, and the truth is very important to me. Like truth is paramount to everything else. And so for me, it was a matter of digging deep enough um, into a truth that's transformative. And also I would say this, that my experience, and I heard the words be still, and this is funny, uh, 
but I didn't realize that was a scripture. Oh, it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, and it's like every, you know, it's everywhere now and everybody loves that and they, you know, and they embroider it on things and hang it on their walls. But I really, I was so removed from the Christian element that when I heard the words be still, I didn't, I didn't relate it to the scripture at all. I just felt peace, just overwhelming peace. And I think also as I navigated the evangelical churches after my awakening, um, the experience that I had had, there was like a cognitive dissonance between mm -hmm. what was being taught and pushed in these churches versus the experience, you know, that I had had the encounter. I felt like I encountered God. It was perfect peace. Um, the light of truth just, just, just exploded all the illusions in that moment and I didn't find that to be so in these for the most part in these evangelical churches and so um, it was a dissatisfaction I think that a lot of people are comfortable in evangelical Christianity and so if you're comfortable um, then you, there's no reason to kind of dig deeper or explore further but um, even if the truth blows my life apart that's what's important to me and so uh, even if it looks like nothing that I anticipated that it would look like, and, and it's in those moments that we're uh, able to be upended in a way that um, that really is transformative. So I think it's because I was just open to whatever's true, wherever mm -hmm. that may come from and whatever that may look like. Yeah, and and I, I discovered your work on, on Instagram. I'm, I'm just trying to think uh, somebody must have shared your posts, but it, you, you Instagram at what contemplative reflections, I think your name, uh, Brandy Anderson yeah. comes up now, but it's at contemplative reflections. And I, and I just encourage everybody to check out Brandy's account because she posts just um, profound Instagram posts. Like you're literally the first person I has to be on the podcast just because of their Instagram account. Cause um, I'm always blessed when I write readings. And, and so you, you just, have a, a ability to capture the everything you kind of just said the mystery you do a lot of shadow kind of posts I think mean, I can see the Jungian influence but um just before we get into the even deeper on on those things like talk a little bit about your writing process because you're 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 a really clear writer so like what 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 kind of process do you use to create just the posts that you share yeah, I, well, really, it's just whatever is bubbling up for me in the moment, you know, um, like as as I sit with things, um, you know, my own personal contemplative reflections, the things that really penetrate uh, into my own depths, those are the things that I tend to write about. So if it speaks to me, I feel like it will speak to other people. And also, um, while I do intend to share uh, in a way that may be helpful to other people on similar journeys. Writing is also very helpful for me to get my thoughts, iron my thoughts out uh, in a productive way. As a five on the Enneagram, I could get caught in the trap of just thinking like internal thoughts. So writing is a way for me to kind of express uh, what's going on internally and uh, just iron it out in a more cohesive manner. Do you actually do, I mean, sort of intentionally journaling as part of your contemplative practice? Is that a regular piece? So some of this is even kind of coming out of your personal journals? No. And that's the funny part is that I don't journal. And mm. I kind of look at the contemplative reflections in the blog is, is kind of like my journal, uh, not, not as personal as a journal would be, obviously. Um, and I have journaled and I, and I occasionally jot things down or, or take note of this or that, but I'm not a regular 
journaler. I just can't seem to stick to it, but I do keep a dream journal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's the only consistent journal that journaling that I that I do. And is that a pro? Is the dream journaling a product of the Jungian influences, where a lot of the analyst analysis comes off of kind of recording dreams and such? Yes. Um, during my time at Hayden, they see they offer a spiritual direction program, which is what I took part in, and they also offer a two-year certification in dream work. Mm. So dream work is very much a part of everything they do. And so as I navigated through the spiritual direction aspects, which is heavily Jungian based, um, we had uh, dream work groups. So, and we were encouraged to keep a dream journal during that time. And it's something that I really, I really wasn't looking forward to, to be honest. I thought, ah, uh, you know, my dreams make no sense. Uh, you know, I just, you know, but as I, as I did it, and as I took part in the dream groups, working actual dreams with people, I found it to be one of the most transformative parts of the program. So, so share a little bit about that. Um, I mean, I've seen, I've personally had recurring dreams that ultimately became part of my own healing journey. So I, I can sense, you know, the power of that. But how, how do you, what's the process of actually capturing dreams so that you know because obviously if you have a strong enough dream you will remember it but i mean we dream all the time and i mean i couldn't i know i was dreaming last night but i couldn't tell you what a dream so like what what how do you do a dream journal so that you can actually capture what's going on you know at least whatever you can recall yeah uh, so a lot of times you do wake up and it's like the dream is fresh in your mind and then as you awaken it dissipates um and that is gonna that that's just going to happen but um one thing is when you first wake up, maybe don't open your eyes immediately. Lie there for a moment and try to just remain aware, you know, of where you were in the dream um, and then record it immediately. Like, don't think, well, I'm going to have my coffee and then I'll because you'll forget. It just it, it just goes away. It vanishes. Even the ones that you think, oh, I wouldn't forget that you do. Uh, there are dreams that I've recorded and thought as I was recording them, I would I would never forget this. And when I look back, I have no recollection when I'm reading it, I'm like, wow, it's like news to me all over again. So yeah, it, some people keep like a recorder next to their bed. Um, and if they wake up in the middle of the night, they'll record or jot down with a little light. Um, I don't really do that. I don't record dreams unless they're profound in the middle of the night. It's mainly a, a morning routine for me. Okay. So some people do act. That's always my next question. Some people actually do. If you wake up, you actually sort of wake up even more and just record mm-hmm. the dream. Okay, I yeah. gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, that could be helpful. All right. Well, thank you. Um talk um so what do you think it is for you? I mean, you got this be still and I mean that's about as a contemplative a calling as I mean you can really have, but like what it what about contemplative spirituality really connected with you that you found so satisfying and fulfilling? I mean, you mentioned mystery, but like, you know, what is it? Can you put articulate? um, It's kind of a hard question, but like, what, 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 what is it about contemplation that really satisfies your soul? Would you say? I would say it's experience. It's moving beyond conceptualizing spirituality into actually experiencing uh, which, like you just said, it's hard to put into words because, you know, words in themselves are not the thing. They're the finger pointing at the moon, as the Zen saying goes. Um, but yes, very experiential. That's what I like about the contemplative path. Um, in the beginning, I, be- I began with like centering prayer 
practice. And from there, I've, you know, I've moved into other things, but um, yeah, so it's just, it's just about becoming aware and cultivating a sustained awareness of our oneness with God, our oneness with, you know, with the divine. Um, and from that flows a peace. That's where, you know, and wholeness. And that's because um, that's really how we get lost. Um, to see ourselves as separate and superior. That's where all manner of sin, all manner of, you know, war and violence and all those things spring from. So it's just it's just an awakening into our true identity, our true self, our oneness. That's so powerful. And you mentioned centering prayer. Um, when you talk about contemplation, you mentioned you're not a journaler, so you don't do a lot of prayer of exam and stuff. So like what are, I mean, for lack of better words, I'm just going to say modalities. So like what what other sort of contemplative practices or habits do you uh, find helpful? Um, so, I, you know, centering prayer has been really helpful. And then from there, I added mindfulness, mm. um, which is more of an Eastern, uh, mm -hmm. you, you know, you don't see that so much in Christian circles. Although it coincides beautifully with centering prayer, and it's been extremely helpful to me, it's something that you would apply more in your daily activities. Um, it's just a returning to center in every moment. You know, like if, if you find yourself caught up in thought, uh, just, you know, return to your breath, return to center and put space between yourself and your thoughts and your emotions so that you can observe without judgment uh, and with curiosity, the processes, because until we explore those inner processes, we can't become whole. I mean, you have to have some level of self-awareness to ever get, get out of the trap, you know, our compulsions, um, the complexes. So mindfulness has been extremely helpful, uh, probably maybe the most helpful. It's just a, a practice of presence, to put it simply. I mean, you know, it's not, there's nothing fancy about it. It's just like be present in every moment and notice what's going on internally and um and i also um like you like lexio divina um that's something that i have like it is a as a reflection tool it's less of a uh you know it's more of just a, a self-reflection tool i would do that or maybe even the tarot which you don't hear about that in many christian circles but in the Hayden spiritual direction uh tarot was introduced in a way that was extremely helpful uh the cards you know have archetypal significance so to draw a card for reflection and to reflect on the archetypal meanings um and how that resonates with what is coming up for you in that moment um it really gets into the depths of the unconscious you know and, and kind of how things are, are swirling underneath the surface so that's been helpful so i would say to row reflection centering prayer mindfulness are most helpful to me. A quick question on um, on mindfulness, and I actually want to come back to the tarot too. But um, you know, you made a distinction between um, centering prayer and mindfulness, which I think, which I think is right. Um, um, do you make any distinction between like? A, Again, I'm not trying to judge another religion or even a secular technique by the by the question. Um, the technique's the same. I mean, the centering prayer and mindfulness is almost the same. I mean, I've studied some vipassana, my, you know, myself. Um, um, 
to me, it's always about the intention, the idea that I'm going to sit with uh, with Jesus. Um, so there's that intention there. Does that come into the mindfulness? Uh, and again, I'm not trying to like say don't shouldn't follow your breath, but I think you're tracking with me. But there's it isn't when like because when some people hear mindfulness, like oh, you're just um, you're not a Christian anymore. You're just a Buddhist or whatever. But right. that's not what you're actually saying. You're just talking about practicing the presence of God, if you will, like a Brother Lawrence type of thing. And you're just noticing a technique that lets you. Like I'd almost say you could do centering prayer the same way. You just use your prayer word and recenter in the same way yeah. that you're talking about. So what is there a distinction that you make beyond kind of what what I'm because I'm trying to hear what you're saying so I can learn like what am what am I missing from what if what you just heard me say to what you're you're trying to communicate? Yeah. So well, I would I would begin by saying that there is no secular world. There's only the sacred twisted in darkness. So uh when I follow my breath. Um, you know, God is in that, Amen. you know, yeah. uh, when I wash the dishes, God is in that, um, yes. every, you know, God is within us in every moment, God is being itself. So to return to center, I, I pay attention to my breath so that I can become centered. And from that state of centeredness in that present moment, you know, I'm able to experience the divine flow, this, the, the move of spirit in that moment is to quiet oneself. Um, and so like, while centering prayer is a thing you do, you set aside time. So usually mm -hmm. it's a 20 minute sit in the morning and you sit down and you, um, devote yourself to 20 minutes of quiet. But as you're going about your busy day and you're having, you know, interactions with other people and you're at work and, you know, and life is hectic in those moments, um, you know, it might not be realistic to take a 20 minute prayer sit. So in those moments, you could literally just take a few breaths. I mean, you know, just and, and notice your breath in a way that brings you back to center. And, you know, and you can call it what you want. You know, um, the breath of God is the breath that we breathe anyway. So if, you know, you return to God, return to center. Um, so I would say the distinction centering prayer, you come to that with with the intention to connect with well, I don't want to say connect with because we're always connected with the divine, but to become aware of our connection with the divine, to just soak in that, you know, to have your your focus on God during that time. Mindfulness is more about what's going on in me as I process the world around me. What emotions are repetitive? What narrative am I spinning around my circumstances that keeps me trapped? Because that really is, I mean, that's the shadow at work in us that keeps that keeps us bound up. Um, you know, it's like, do we have a shadow or does, does the shadow have us? Jung said, how do you see a lion that has swallowed you? <laughs> and so and that and that's what it is. And that's the root of all Christian practice really at heart is about noticing those things, you know, the ego um, and and getting out of those compulsions but we can't get away from that we can't be set free from that if we're not aware of that so you know as you know as you're as you're in an argument with someone are you caught up in the argument or are you you know are you projecting onto them and they're projecting onto you or you can you step aside like a good matador and just let those things go by and notice them with you know just put your awareness on them and so i, I don't think there's anything um you know, Buddhist about that. I think it's just a very human uh, way to approach our own spirituality. I mean, we're not just spirit. We're an entire human being. And um, so our wholeness is essential. 
Love it. Thank you. That I thought that was a really compelling, uh, uh, really compelling answer. Do you? Um, oh, I lost my my thought here. I wanted to go back. Oh, do you do any somatic practices? Now you almost sound like you got there when you were talking about the mindfulness because you're noticing what's going on on the inside. Do you do you do anything with like sensations in the body, pains, aches, that sort of thing, and track through that as a way to uh, deepen your connection with the divine? I, I practice Tai Chi, um, and I added that last. I'm a five on the Enneagram, so I like these contemplative practices, you know, that are about watching the thoughts and releasing thought, because for me, thoughts are my compulsion. But also as a five, it would be easy for me to uh, retreat into my headspace and not be very embodied. So Tai Chi has been uh, instrumental. It's a mindful movement. And so it just brings me into the present moment, into my body to become aware of any tensions, um, the way that the energy is flowing. And it's a very, unlike yoga, it's a very circular, you know, it's a softness overcomes hardness, you know, in Tai Chi. So it's a very, um, I don't know, just, um, it's soft, you know, it's, it's a way of just being present in a very circular fluid type motion. So that I find that very helpful. Well, thank you. Yeah, let me ask you a little bit about the tarot. Um, uh, I, I don't know very much about them. I mean, I've seen the, I've seen the cards and, and I think there's another Instagram account I uh, follow that, uh, I forget what her name is, I think last name is Moeller that just wrote a book on tarot with, um, yeah. I think with that Roman Catholicism or something. So I've seen some of her posts. So um, you using these for archetypes and i don't know if that's what they i guess that's what they always were they're cards of archetypes but you're reading is through like a union lens through the your training i take it so like what how do the how does how do the tarot cards help a person to i guess see their shadow or see undeveloped parts of themselves i don't know how the language is so like how how is that a spiritual practice yeah, so every card has an image, and I mean, there are so many tarot decks uh, on the market, you you know, um, different cartoon characters or, <laughs> you know, whatever your movie themes, and but the traditional Rider weight deck is what I use, because that's what was recommended by the person who lectured uh, where I, you know, where I learned about tarot, um, but each one represents like an archetype, it's the hero's journey, you know, mm -hmm. the union model of the hero's journey and like card zero is the fool and so it depicts like a young guy who has like a little sack over his shoulder like a little stick with a little sack and I mean really there's no more than maybe a sack lunch in that sack he's very light and free and he's looking out at the horizon but he's about to step over a cliff and there's a little dog swirling around his feet. And um, and so the imagery in that card, it just represents that innocent, uh, uninhibited beginning that we all, you know, we all start there. And in some ways, we come back full circle to that because the fool is really no fool at all. <laughs> you know, he's he's unashamed. He's um, he's present in the moment. He's he's living life fully. And his little dog is a representation of the divine protection. Like he's guarded, even though, you know, even though he's stepping off of a cliff, he has this protection around him. So as we sit with the cards and they represent so much and you can look at the, you know, the artwork. And, and like I said, there's so many decks um, and, you know, and it evokes something in you and you kind of just reflect 
on how that resonates with where you are in your own journey in that moment, because, you know, everything is fluid. Um, a lot of people, you know, push against the tarot because they're like, oh, it's a divination tool. Um, well, first of all, um, you know, casting lots and the, the ephod and I mean, you know, that's divination 101. So divination was throughout scripture. But um, but I think it's because people think that they're used to like predict the future. But in my view, the, the future is fluid. So it's impossible to predict future. But what you can do is take a glimpse or a snapshot of particular patterns, you know, repetitive thoughts and patterns and compulsions and propensities in our lives. And those things do tend to produce particular outcomes. So while you may not predict the future, you could say, well, this person is headed in this direction and they're likely to end up here based on these propensities, these compulsions, these thoughts. And so the tarot is just a tool to help you reflect on your own inner processes, the, the direction that you're headed in any moment. It's not definitive. It's not saying you're going to end up here. It's saying, hey, you could, you know, you could address this and you could take a different, you know, it, it brings awareness so that you could maybe alter how things turn out um, for yourself. No, that may, I think that makes sense. And yeah, I think the key word is like, like you said, it's like, a, it's not so much divination as it isn't like illumination in a way. It's kind of like a pre-critical personality test in a way. I mean, that's, that's not saying it the right way either, but it's not unlike some of these things that aren't describing your they're not predestined you to something they're describing yeah. pieces of yourself that if you would not alter or not change your course you might end up a certain place i think that's what i'm hearing you say so that's that's really interesting yeah. so thank you for uh to, for bringing that up because i think uh, i think you're the first person to talk about about yeah. all that uh, yeah. uh in, on the on the show um talk a little bit about jung um again i could pick your brain i think for hours on some of this stuff um uh, you know, you you, you did the, your 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 spiritual direction f heavily focused on Jung, and I guess that's where the psycho spiritual label even comes in. Um, talk about how that gives you a distinct form of spiritual direction, and maybe also and um, tease out a little bit. Like, what do you wish Christians knew about Jung that you found most people don't know about that would be helpful? Yeah, so. Jungian psychology is influenced by spirituality. I mean, Jung was a deeply spiritual. He was a mystic, you know, so. Um, and his family, his parents were pastors or brothers or his family right. and stuff was he's from a family of pastors, basically. Yeah. And he had phenomenal uh, spiritual experiences and um, communication with spirits. Um, I mean, you know, just all kinds of things that shaped his his view, his work. So. Uh, Jung in and of himself is psycho-spiritual. Um, so, but that would influence spiritual direction for me in a way that it just offers um, a model of the psyche or a, a model. It, well, it offers a model of the psyche and a map for navigating the depths of the unconscious, I would say, in a, in a way that integrates the uh, shadow aspects um, and allows us to live within that tension of opposites that is within us and within all of creation. Um, I think... Um, you know, a strictly spiritual approach would maybe attempt to kill the ego. Um, I hear some people in spiritual circles talk about kill the ego, um, but you can't you can't kill the ego. You know, um, the ego is necessary. It's not bad. Right. Um, the um, it's a container, you know, and, and up to a certain point, it serves us well. 
And then when we come to the end of that, it's time to do our inner work and, and integrate everything. So, um, yeah, I would say that uh, Jung's work would encourage us to just welcome the various aspects of ourselves that we've traditionally repressed or denied and um, and integrate them so that we can become a whole person. Um, and you asked, I guess, the second part of your question was uh, some takeaways. Uh, yeah, that maybe most Christians might not know about Jung that you found helpful. Like what would be some takeaways that uh, maybe yeah. people in the church need to be aware of? Probably the most important takeaway that is largely missed in Western Christianity, I believe, is that we meet God in the darkness, not in the light. Mm. Um, in Exodus 20, 21, it says that uh, as the people stood in the distance, um, Moses entered into the deep darkness where God was. I mean, that's probably my favorite verse. I'll be, you know, most people are like, you know, they like the verses that are like, oh, um, you know, be still and know that I am God. But this verse for me is it. Um, I think it encapsulates beautifully um, the spiritual journey. Uh, people do tend to shrink back from that, you know, and, and Moses entered into that. And so it's the traits that we present to the world and that are that are generally inauthentic. That's the light. It's the manufactured qualities, and that's what we find favorable. And that's not where we meet God. Um, but our shadow qualities, which I should say that the shadow is not bad, it's just hidden. It's unconscious. Um, but the shadow qualities uh, are the things that we hide from ourselves and others, and they're really um, more genuine and closer to to center. And so that's where we meet God. And um, I think. As Jung noted, we fail, if we fail to make the unconscious conscious, it'll determine our lives and we'll call it fate. And so we cannot become whole by avoiding the darkness. We have to shine a light into the awareness, um, into the darkness. And modern Western Christianity, uh, there's a tendency just to avo avoid darkness and lean into the light, attempt to bypass the real shadow work. Um, I see it as mainly a system of sin management. Um, and it just really fuels the ego fire and it perpetuates great evil. Um, it's when we it's when we fail to recognize our shadow that it becomes evil. It's not evil in and of itself. It's when we cut it off, when we, um, you know, uninvite it to the party. That's when it wreaks havoc. Ken Wilber coined the phrase spiritual bypassing. You know, it's when we avoid the difficult processes uh, of facing our own junk and our own shadow issues. And instead, we press into what we consider favorable. And I see that in the Western church, you know, it, it's really prevalent and it's disastrous for the people who are stuck there. I think to get stuck there would be the greatest tragedy of life. But um, <laughs> Wilbur also insightfully noted that the Western church is essentially just the ego dressed in drag. And <laughs> that to me is, is a, a hilarious and an apt way to kind of describe it. So um but the reconcilia reconciliation of opposites, we find that all throughout scripture and the church avoids this, you know, they, they you know, they just really skirt around it. But the tension of opposites is, is there. Christ himself is a tension of opposites, perfectly reconciled and balanced. And um, he's an intersection of the divine and the human. Uh, the prototype of the reconciliation of opposites and our God into the realm of the uh, of out of out of conflict and duality i would say it's a non-dual um and then the psalmist declared you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies 
you know, it's in the presence of the enemies, you know, that the psalmist finds peace. So we have to welcome, you know, all of those undesirable adversaries to our table if we ever be reconciled and find peace. And then Isaiah, he intuited the, the truth beautifully when he prophesied that uh, the coming reconciliation of opposites would usher in universal peace. You know, he foresaw a time when the wolf would lie down with the lamb and the, the leopard with the baby and, and so forth. So then he come to understand that genuine healing comes through reconciliation of opposites and not the elimination of what we deem undesirable. Powerful. Yeah, that, that is, that is, that's really powerful. And so, yeah, yeah. And, and then obviously even Paul and Christ, there's no male or female, uh, slave yeah. or free, uh, Jew or Gentile. So yeah, you see this, uh, uh non-dual thing yeah i'm still sitting back on the exodus first there too i mean you pick that and you pick those themes up in like the clot of unknowing yeah uh, where you read that again I, I'm, I'm just got my brain buzzing here now um it's interesting um and you may or may not know this you probably know it but uh you know that that verse in first uh, kings 19 where um uh, elijah um goes back to Horeb looking for um well he need, he needs a spectacular sign and uh in the the old King James says he he heard a still small voice but I, I don't know if you ever looked at it it's actually he heard the sound of utter silence so it was like yeah. um yeah th th that goes along with the same thing you're talking about essentially right right that's it I mean it's in the silence it's when uh yes the the Zen saying um that muddy that how do you get rid of muddied water? You make it still or, or something like, you know, uh, in the stillness, muddy water becomes clear. And so that's what it is. I mean, God is within us. Um, and so we have to still ourselves, quiet our minds, calm our nervous systems. And it's in that silence, which that's what centering prayer is about. It's about, you know, becoming silent within so that we can hear God within and that's that's how we communicate that's how we're led by the spirit and you can't be led by the spirit and you can't have you know divine insights uh when your own thoughts and emotions are just swirling around in chaos so yeah it's it's definitely in the silence that we're able to um see the truth see through the illusion i would say yeah, and I'll, and I'll just want to, I mean, readers know that if you listen enough on my podcast, I have some episodes where I've talked about my deconstruction phases and how he, healing prayer or centering prayer brought healing and stuff after my difficult uh, uh, times. Uh, I know the the metaphor that, I, that I've always used is I always felt like I was hanging on to the edge of an abyss and I, there was no way to get back out of it. Um, and then one day I just gave up and surrendered and fell into the utter blackness. And it was at that moment that my faith came back on, which just still was kind of, uh, that was, it was like, why did it take so long to get this lesson? But I think I'm hearing you basically, <laughs> basically saying I just should have jumped right in right at the beginning. And I'd have been a little bit better off. I, I thought I was lost. And in fact, I was uh, inches from, uh, oh, my own bullheadedness was hanging on for dear life to the one, to the experience that was ultimately going to, uh, engulf me in um you know at least moments of uh pure divine love um so that's uh, so thanks for um articulating that so well so uh, some takeaways for for listeners 
you know, th th there's that. What's what's that guy's name? Uh, Joseph Campbell has that quote: uh, "The cave you afraid to enter holds the treasure that you seek." I mean, yes. you know, Moses goes into the the darkness. Um, so, if you're listening and you're like, "Okay, I'm not so sure about all this stuff," but like, um, how how do you help a person that comes to you for direction start? to lean into some shadow work because that seems like that that's the, my favorite post you put up with these really deep kind of reflections so how do you or maybe just look at your instagram account but it's like <laughs> how, how do you start to lean help somebody lean into the shadow because it's it's scary right i would say you know a lot of times people don't know where to begin you know like uh we were bombarded by thoughts and sensations emotions um you know so mm -hmm. It's like, where to even begin? You know, how do I even, you know, um, get there, begin, start out? So for, you know, I, I tell people to start with a with a practice, some type of um, contemplative practice that uh, quiets the mind and calms the nervous system so that they can take a glimpse, like I've said before, but also is to notice the, the repetitive thoughts. It's not just thought, it's the repetitive thoughts. It's the narrative that we spin. It's the filter that we see everything through. It's the repetitive feelings, the, the repetitive, you know, bodily sensations that are coming up for us. So it's just a, to start to take like an inventory, just to notice without judgment, you know, and, and without resisting uh, in a curious way, just notice those things and then give them a separate identity, you know, realize that, you know, that, that critical, uh, you know, aspect is not me, you know, or notice also like that the feelings are not you and you're not your thoughts and you're not your feelings. So it's like to put space between you and what's kind of coming up. So it's like, I'm not angry. I feel anger. You know, it's mm. kind of like to, to, you know, house it in, in that kind of uh, framework. Um, and then from there, it's really as you shine the light of your awareness on these things, they lose a grip on you. It's really not so much that you let go of anything. You know, that implies some sort of uh, effort on our part to release, to let go of, you know, and people are like, oh, I, I'm trying to let go. And it's like, <laughs> you can't try, you know, it's not an effort. It's effortless. It's like a cork on the sea. So um, really, it's it's not a matter of letting go. It's a matter of just noticing these things. And as you shine the light of your awareness on them. If you look unflinchingly, the light of truth, they lose their grip, you know? Do you actually do exercises? Because um, you mentioned the labeling, like you, if you, if you realize you're angry or, or I think it's, that was the emotion that you used. Yeah. Do you actually um, recommend people getting like a list of emotions, especially if they have a reduced vocabulary just to learn so like you know because the difference between being angry being annoyed being furious and all those sure. do, do you do do you do that kind of thing too to actually learn to build awareness by actually correctly labeling what's coming up is that part of your process yeah, i think that could be extremely i was just talking to a friend about that uh she was saying that she was using an emotion wheel yeah <laughs> and, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, yeah so and i think that's that could be very helpful for people um in spiritual direction, it's more about providing space for people to take that dive inward on their own. And, and it's about just asking the right questions. You know, you don't give people answers. The answers are within them already. You just kind of ask questions that would lead people, you know, into their own awareness. Um, but I am about to begin uh, a union coaching program. 
And I do intend to lean more heavily into the shadow work aspect and a more coaching, um, you know, role. And from there, yes, I would definitely think it would be helpful to use like an emotion wheel so that people could, you know, properly label what they're feeling um, and kind of parse that out. And even, you know, I think it's um, Connie Zweig, I think I'm saying her name correctly, um, union analyst. I love her work. Um, she's brilliant. Um, but I've heard her say that uh, you identify these characteristics and then give them their own name. You know, you personify them. And in that way, you're able to you know, put space between you and that and realize that's not who I am. And you take away the power when you do that. Do you do any, uh, again, I'm, I'm going to start winding the conversation down because I just keep everything, time you say something, it just kind of piques my interest. Do you do any um, work with internal family systems? Are you familiar with that where you you kind of label the different pieces inside of yourself? I think that's some kind of riff off of Jungian stuff. Are you aware of that at all? If not, it's okay. Um, I don't I don't think so. I mean, I'm, no, okay. it's more of just a labeling the emotions that come okay. up uh, and personifying them. So I'll have to look okay. into that. That sounds interesting. Yeah, you might find it interesting. I'm I'm a dabbler, so I'm not an expert, but I, I it's interesting because it talks about labeling different parts of yourself. And that's probably some similarities. Again, uh, you can ignore yeah. that, too. For once. Yeah. Um, to talk uh, just to wind things down again, I want to thank you for your for your time. But, uh, but I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about the book that you're in the process uh, of writing. Um, yeah, so I had my grandmother when she passed, um, she had an aversion to death. She had lived to be 95. She had, you know, a long, healthy life. Um, she was a Methodist most of her life, Baptist, Methodist, but Methodist primarily, um, attended church her entire life, um, attended Sunday school, did the Bible studies, um, yeah, I mean, she would have definitely, you know, identified as, you know, a believer, you know, a member of a church who was saved and believed, you know, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as she faced death and, you know, in her old age, as she declined, she was horrified to die. She was really afraid to die. And um, and so but ultimately she she did. She crossed. And as a result. Um, she sort of got stuck as she crossed between two realities because she resisted death in such a way. Um, and it caused her to be able to communicate with us. She reached back out from the other side, which I, I'll just go on and say that that was horrifying, very frightening for the family members that witnessed it. I mean, coming from an evangelical background, that was just, I mean, we would never have attempted to communicate with spirits or um, you know, or believe that that was our grandmother coming back through. Uh, but anyway, in the course of time, we did indeed uh, determine that it, it is, it was her. And, um, and she came through with love and in, in an attempt to, you know, right some wrongs, um, uh, relational healing. Um, every communication was geared toward health and wholeness. And it brought a lot of healing to the family. So, but as an aside, because I'm kind of a, a theology nerd I'm, <laughs> and I'm, I'm very much on a spiritual journey, um, I benefited from our communications um, because I was able to have conversations with her around theological um, issues, uh, spiritual matters. And it just really 
my communication with her connected theological dots for me in ways I couldn't have imagined. It was, it's, it's, and it's brought me so much peace. And I see now from that encounter, the interconnectedness of all things. And I have uh, no doubt. It's like it, before this, I would have said, you know, God is love. Uh, the universe is benevolent. Conceptually, I knew that to be true. Now I have the experience of it. It's, it overtakes me. It's not something that I can um, that I can forget. Um, so it's been very peace inducing. But the book um, is I share in the book what I've learned as a result of all of my studies. So it's very uh, very much filtered through the Christian uh, context, scriptures, um, and then what my grandmother kind of brought into sharp existential focus for me. Just like with searing clarity, I just, you know, I, I bring those things two together and um, and I just share what I've learned in a way that I hope would bring uh, a sense of peace and hope into the world. There's a lot of fear around death, even in, in Christian circles. And there's a lot of even within Christianity, there's a lot of different, you know, there are three views on hell alone, the atonement. I mean, we could go on and on. Um, you know, nobody lands anywhere. There's there's all this division. And so for me, which I struggled with that you know, during my time, you know, as I passed through Christianity and tried to find, you know, uh, a deep truth that I could rest in, that was, I guess, how I landed in the contemplative space. You know, I was frustrated, you know, with all of these, the, the arguments, the debates, the uh, the inconsistencies, um, all of the different ways of interpreting scripture. Um, so my experience with my grandmother really just for me, um, yeah, just brought things into sharp focus in a way that I'm able to rest. I mean, there's there's always mystery. Yeah. So it certainly doesn't answer every question. You know, the more I know, the more I realize I'll never know. Um, so but it but it does kind of tie up some loose ends and, um, you know, and offers a sense of peace, I think. Well, thank you, and uh, and you're looking for a publisher at this point. So, you, but do you anticipate sometime in the next couple of years? Hopefully, you'll be able to get uh, your book out into the world. Yeah, that's my hope. I have uh, it's been uh, professionally edited, and right now I'm reaching out to agents. So my hope is to go that route, but that's difficult. So if that doesn't materialize, I may look into self-publishing or other options. But yeah, my hope is within the next year or two to have it available. All right. Yeah, talk just a little bit. Uh, this is a quite the rest of the questions are asked all my guests. Um, what does your container look like on a typical day? Like, what what practices or routines do you use to kind of keep yourself grounded in in your work for the Lord? Um, so for me, uh, I like to do a morning contemplative sit, um, and I usually start with uh, centering prayer, and then from there, some sort of reflection. And um, it's, it's, I'm kind of inconsistent. Sometimes it's tarot. I just draw one card randomly and reflect on that and maybe journal a little bit about the card if, if something significant uh, emerges. Um, sometimes Lexio Divina, it may be scripture, you know, that I use to, to just reflect, have inner reflection. Um, sometimes I take a walk, like a contemplative walk. I live in the woods, so... <laughs> I can just walk in nature and just be mindful as I walk. Um, and that's pretty much, you know, that, that sets the tone for my day. And then uh, beyond that, it's just um, as I notice myself lost in thought, just hooked 
you know, by emotion or, or a random thought. I just, like I said before, I just try to practice mindfulness in the midst because, you know, all of life is spiritual practice. <laughs> Everything is designed to wake us up. So, you know, I just try to, to go into every situation with mindfulness that, hey, this is spiritual practice. And it's usually in the, in the mundane, the, uh, the most unpleasant, like you're waiting in a long line at the bank. I mean, well, you can use that to be mindful about, hey, what's coming up for me right here? What, you know, be curious. Or you can be completely irate that you're having to wait in line, you know. So I just, you know, try to just take the opportunity to be mindful in every moment. So good. Yeah, I love the last illustration. That's so practical. So thank you. Uh, now the possible question for, uh, like you said, you, you describe yourself as a theological nerd and all all these <laughs> books. So it's like if you're just going to, outside of the Bible, so obviously you read the scriptures, but beyond the Bible, like what, what have been two or three books that have really uh, been powerful, uh, that have really shaped you spiritually that uh, that you would highly recommend? That is, that's difficult because <laughs> there are so many wonderful books. I could just, I could just list Amen. and list. I'll start by just saying everything Richard Rohr has ever written has been powerful and impactful for me. And I, and I have him to thank really for where I am. And I always say uh, Richard Rohr is my spiritual director. He just doesn't know it. <laughs> so um, I'll start by saying that, but if you were going to start with one of his books, I mean, obviously, I agree. I've read a bunch of his books. Do you have like a favorite maybe out of all of them? Or if you were going to uh, say probably, Yeah, Breathing Underwater is probably mm, my favorite Richard Rohr yeah, book. They're that's, all that's, so wonderful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Breathing Underwater is the one that kind of follows the the 12 steps, too. Which yeah. Is in a very, yeah, it's a good book. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. And, um, but, and Rohr opened the door for me into more like, while I am a Christian, and I find Jesus most compelling. I find a lot of truth in other traditions also. So it's, you know, um, truth is truth, regardless of who's saying it. Roar says that. Um, so The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer is maybe the most impactful book I have ever read in my life. And I recommend it to everyone. Um, it transcends faith, it, you know, regardless of what your um, your container is, you know, which I find labels largely unhelpful. Um, I would highly recommend that one and um, The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle, which Richard Rohr has um, has a book about the now. What is it? Um, in fact, it was his book that led me to read. He mentions Eckhart Tolle's book in his book. And so, yeah, so that was the catalyst for me into Eckhart Tolle's work. The Power of Now was extremely helpful in me becoming more present in my daily life to to notice the divine in every person and in every moment um, and just to, you know, to live in the now, uh, which that's that's what life is, right? There is no past or future. The now is all that we all that really exists. And um so that would be my second. And Awareness by Anthony DeMello would be the third one. I love Anthony DeMello. His work has been hugely beneficial to me. Oh, that's good. I actually, I have to say, I've I've read all the books that you, you've just mentioned. I've uh, read DeMello recently, I think. Um, yeah, and he was a Jesuit. Uh, well, he, yeah. he died very young. He was a Jesuit uh, priest. And yeah, and even listeners like thinking, oh, Eckhart Tolle and Singer, it's like... Um, the thing that they're really good at um, is, is they're able to describe actually um, the inner life. And um, I think, you know, you know, 
and and it's helpful because they and and it, and I think they can come along. They give a vocabulary of contemplation, really, because sometimes folks struggle to say like, like I get when I talk about centering prayer, like what's supposed to happen, and <laughs> and it's so yeah. hard to describe. Um, right. Those two gentlemen have a gift for actually kind of describing the process of detaching and letting a thought go, which I mean, because I can say that, but how do you do it? And what's it actually seem like? And those books are really good. So yeah, thank you for all of uh, all of those suggestions. Um, yeah. Oh, before we wrap up here and give you the final thank you, where can listeners find out more about you uh, and connect with um, you? Yeah, so the best place to connect with me would be brandyanderson.net. And from there, you can follow my blog, Contemplative Reflections. Um, you can also find links to all my socials and my email. That's good. And you do take, you are taking some direction or some folks that would be interested in uh, 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 in some direction from you? If, if, uh... Uh, yeah, on the site, if you just uh, reach out through email, uh, we can set up, uh, you know, like a, a free consult and go from there. All right. Well, Brandy, thank you so much uh, for being my uh, guest today. I'm uh, grateful for the work that uh, God has done in your life and, uh, and, uh, and and actually even for these experiences that you have that brought you from a position of really struggling in faith uh, to um, being able to articulate it so well for the audience today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure to be here with you. And we want to thank everybody for listening all the way to the end of this week's episode of the Deep Dive Spirituality Conversations podcast. And I think it's fitting to use uh, Bob Tuttle's uh, tagline here at the end. Show up, pay attention. God's got way more invested in everything that's happening than we do. Amen. Amen.